I remember having to hide at night in the children's bathroom because I was afraid he'd find me and having him breathe heavily outside the room, trying to scent me almost like an animal, looking for me. And he was six foot four. And, you know, I knew that it wasn't safe to sleep till he was asleep or he'd passed out from drink. My son said to me one day, why are we still here? And he must have been seven. And one was seven, one was three, one was one. And I was like, I don't know. He said, he's going to hurt us, Mama. I don't know why we're still here. And I was like, good freaking point, child. So I picked up a box of nappies and a child or two and got, you know, and, and, and walked out. And uh, yeah, it all kind of went to hell in a handbasket. My mother turned her back because she said, don't leave all that money in that marriage because that's, you know, go back to him. My father was ill, so he couldn't help. And my mother wouldn't help. My friends, people don't like you when you suddenly stop being rich. You only ever need one person, don't you? One of my girlfriends gave us somewhere to sleep. And I went from my eight bedroom house with my private plane and my home in Monaco and my Ferraris with a roof and Ferraris without a roof and my Rolls Royce and Bentleys to two pairs of shoes, four dresses, stroke trousers, couple of hundred quid and sleeping on sofa cushions on the floor. That was an interesting, exciting moment. And I'd say that was quite definitive. I think that when you do things like this, what I have learned is that you do it when you feel there is no other choice because you don't willingly pick up your children from their nice, cute swimming pool and take them out onto the street. The pain that you cause yourself is infinitely preferable to the pain that someone else is going to cause you. And that was it. I wasn't conscious about it. I didn't think about it. It was what there was. And that was it. And we did it. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. I was introduced to today's guest recently, and I just knew that we had to have this conversation on the Unlock Moment. It's a story of having it all, losing it all, and finding the strength to build again from the very beginning. It's a story of struggle, of grit, of commitment in pursuit of freedom and empowerment for herself and her children. Today, Gita Sidirob is a coach, an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. She's the kind of coach who counts A-list celebrities and royalty amongst her select clients. But what really makes her who she is today? Well, that's all tied up with the extraordinary journey she's been on. I'm deeply grateful that she is coming on the podcast to share her story 
what she has learned from her unlocked moments of remarkable clarity, and how her journey has shaped the person we see and know today. Gita Sudhirob, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so honoured to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Now, before we get into your story, maybe it's helpful to set some context. Paint a picture of the person you are today and what you really feel matters in life. Um, it's, it, it's such a great kind of roll-up end-of-year conversation as well, isn't it? <laughs> Um, who am I today? I would say that I'm a very powerful woman. And it's one of the things that I really enjoy about myself, that it has taken me the odd 15 years to get here, to be able to say those, you know, those three, four words with comfort and ease. And I'm, I'm kind of very happy within my self, my skin, my ambitions, my desires. And I'm also in that really lovely place where, you know how when you're on the cusp of doing all the things you were born to do, but this time around, I know that's what I'm here to do. Interesting. When I've done them before, I was kind of like, oh, damn, I should have done that better. Or I should have done more. Now I'm like, I'm here. It's now. It's the time. And everything just feels all completely aligned for 2024 to be that person and do those things. That's really interesting. And how long would you say you felt in that space? Not long enough, frankly. Um, I would say, you know, it's been a really hard one battle. I would say probably only about the last couple of months. It's really coalesced as a feeling. I had very bad long COVID last year. And so I was bedridden six times over the course of the year. So I went from somebody who did CrossFit four times a year, a week, a, a week, not a year, four times a week. I did CrossFit, worked out six times a week to somebody who couldn't climb upstairs. Um, in a year. And then this year was my year to build myself back up emotionally, physically, and mentally. Um, and next year is to put my foot on the gas, basically. So I would say it's been a journey that's been incoming the whole year, but I've kind of really settled into it over probably the last two months. It's really interesting. And here's my slightly self-indulgent point. When I think back over, you know, the the hundred odd interviews that I've done so far on the online moment, some of the ones that really stick out are when I'm talking to somebody who is right in the middle of the early stages of this new phase of their life. Maybe they've just left a role or they've just found this, this moment of clarity and they don't have all the answers yet, but you can talk to them and, and dive right into what does it feel like right now? And, and I think yeah. that's fascinating. And, and, and so, you know, amazing that we get to speak today. And again, really grateful for you coming on and, and telling your story. So, Take us back. Where do we need to start in your story to really understand the person you are today? Good lordy. That's, that's, that's like a whole, I don't even know how you deal with that can of words. Um, I'm an Indian who grew up in Africa, in Malawi, to a wealthy upper-class family, which meant that I was taught to have my voice and get an education and use it within the confines of marriage, mm. you know, kind of thing. Not, not you have to get married, but that's what good girls like you do. Mm. I came over here when I was 15 on my 15th birthday and I kind of lived, you know, I would say on my own, but of course boarding school and whatever, but you know, without family since then. And I think that's very key to the person that I am because I was brought up to understand that do the right things, do the good things, do the accepted things, and be a bit of a rebel if you must. Mm -hmm. 
but really do the right things. Um, and it sort of ended up, we could hop, skip and jump through to my first child had a, you know, it's so funny. It's like a Russian doll, isn't it? It kind of all links together. My first child who I had in my twenties was very ill. He was allergic to a, um, uh, an injection he was given and he developed eczema, asthma and anaphylaxis. And he, he kept kind of literally dying when he ate something he shouldn't eat till he ended up in hospital uh, in a coma, having had cardiorespiratory arrest and been resuscitated. And that kind of is a really big deal when you're a 20 something. And then and having not my parents come out, his father didn't come out and I was alone with him. And I slept on the floor on incontinence mats next to him because in those days you didn't keep parents in hospitals and I wouldn't leave. Um, and that was life changing because I had to fight everyone going, there's no cure. And I thought, no, that's just silly. Of course there's a cure. And I was a lawyer, which I hated, but it was kind of, I always laugh and say, you know, I'm an Indian. So my choices were doctor, lawyer, accountant, marriage or death type thing. Uh, I was really crap at being married. I thought I'd leave death for a tiny bit. Um, didn't like blood, hated counting and became a lawyer. Didn't really like it at all. Um, so I, I yeah, I, I was looking after this child. I spent five years making him better, curing him completely. And then I had two more kids. and then. The thing that changed me was this that happened next, which is that I was in a marriage that my ex was abusive, violent, and a drunk. And it was a, such a painful place to be. But because I lived in a huge, wealthy house, in a huge, wealthy neighborhood, I always point out that I never married money. We made money. I would never have married money. Um, and... But I did let him run the money because I was having the babies and I was being, you know, doing all the back office and everything. So he did all the Vava Voom stuff and I was the lawyer and having the babies. And I had two babies in three years, which is highly relevant for anyone who's ever had a child because, you know, your brain falls out of your head. Um, and I remember having to hide, uh, you know, at night in the children's bathroom, not breathing because I was afraid he'd find me. And having him breathe heavily outside the room, trying to scent me almost like an animal, looking for me. And he was six foot four. And, you know, I knew that it wasn't safe to sleep till he was asleep or he'd passed out from drink. And so it was, you know, the funny thing about this stuff is I had forgotten all of this until about four months ago. And it started to all come back. It was obviously the right time for my brain to be able to cope with this. I'd worked on helping kids, not myself. And so I woke up, my son said to me one day, why are we still here? And he must've been seven. And one was seven, one was three, one was one. And I was like, I don't know. He said, he's gonna hurt us, mama. I don't know why we're still here. And I was like, good fricking point, child. So I picked up a box of nappies and a child or two and got, you know, and, and, and walked out. And, uh, yeah, it all kind of went to hell in a handbasket. My mother turned her back because she said, don't leave all that money in that marriage because that's, you know, go back to him. My father was ill, so he couldn't help. Uh, my mother wouldn't help. Um, my friends, people don't like you when you suddenly stop being rich, kind of, you know. Uh, but one of my girlfriends, you only ever need one person, don't you? One of my girlfriends gave us somewhere to sleep. And I went from my eight-bedroom house with my private plane and my home in Monaco. 
and my Ferraris with a roof and Ferraris without a roof and my Rolls Royce and Bentleys to two pairs of shoes, four, four dresses, stroke trousers, a couple of hundred quid and um, sleeping on sofa cushions on the floor. Right. And so, you know, that was an interesting, exciting moment. Um, and I'd say that was quite definitive. And the reason I would say that was definitive was because the level of resistance, Gary, I got to my behavior was insane. Firstly, nobody could believe I'd walked out. And he emptied all our bank accounts, you understand. And then the place where I was trying to find somewhere to live, he, he emptied all our bank accounts and was helped by all our bankers to empty all our bank accounts because they knew what he was doing, which was a real learning. Um, and I, I just, I... I, I kind of put a flag in the ground and I made certain decisions. One was never again, ever. This is never happening to me again, never. The second flag I put in the ground was that I will become someone different. And that means that I am not going to be good because being good doesn't get me anywhere because there was no payoff for being good. I kept being good. I was supposed to be good till I died. I don't think so. And the third flag in the ground was that I was going to always know what I did for money. Like I wasn't going to, my mother was like, no one's going to marry somebody with three kids. And I was like, there's a line of them. There's literally a frigging queue. They're all here. There's a frigging queue and they all have money. And and she was like, well, marry one. And I was like, I am never, never, I'm doing this alone. And that was quite a big deal for somebody from my background and my culture and everything. And so I got a lot of abuse and problems and pushback and all kinds of stuff. And yeah, so that I'd say that was definitive. What a story. And, and I think that there are a lot of people who will think about maybe in their own journey or people they know, they'll go, they were doing well and then things turned and it was difficult and they had that challenge. But as you describe that, the difference between your environment growing up and then in particular the environment that you're in, the external perspective of the environment you're in you know, the private plane, the house in Monaco and the Ferraris to three kids under seven and sleeping on the floor is extraordinary. And I can hear, and I know because we've had this conversation before, and I want people to hear what that's created in you or what that's unlocked in you that maybe was always there in terms of that drive. Because I can imagine a lot of people, a lot of people in that situation would have folded under the, the pressure. Yeah. And I was very lucky that <laughs> growing up as my mother's daughter in my family, I was subject to an enormous amount of pressure. My parents were very well known. So it was an enormous amount of pressure anyway. So I was fine with lots of pressure. I was fine with being disapproved of. The thing was that the minute, it, it's, and then he bankrupted me, so I couldn't rent anywhere. So it just kept coming. I weighed 14 pounds a day. There was just this place where I remember him saying, because I, I, I was thinking, do I take the children out of school? Because I'm, they're, in a, they're in a private school in inner city London, which let me assure you is so incredibly, insanely expensive that the only intelligent thing to do would have been to take them out of school. And I remember him saying to me one day, if you would just come back, the kids could stay in school. But you know, you just can't do it without me. And I thought, thank you. The fact that you're a raging twat is immensely helpful because it means that I, 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 I just, it, I, you know, I was so angry at that view that I couldn't do it without him. I, I, you know, I really have to thank him. Had he not been quite so appalling, 
I would have stayed a lot longer. I was very lucky. Somebody said to me, you'd be very grateful for this one day. And I slapped them. Well, I wanted to slap them. Um, and it's true. Had he not been so unutterably uncompassionate and awful, I would have made the best of a really bad job, like millions of women do. That's fascinating. I interviewed around a year ago an incredible coach and leader called Ruth Gautian, who's in the US. And she was talking about when people turned around to her and said, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. And she said, I thank them because because of them, I turned around and did it anyway. And it fueled me to do that. And it's exactly what you're saying here. It's very interesting. Do you think that was always in you as you were growing up, regardless of your circumstances, the people around you, your family around you? Was that always in you to be able to be that strong in such an extreme situation? Yes. I think that we are given what we can bear, actually. Mm -hmm. And I have two, two parts that, 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 that if I look back, the fact that I'm Sikh means that I was brought up understanding I was part of a warrior race. We're, we're, I, we have a lovely religion. We don't hate anyone. We love everyone. You can go pray anywhere you like. There's one God. Chill the hell out. Do good things to people. Don't do anything bad. It's kind of the core of the religion. So it's impossible to hate. And everywhere you go, if there's a war-torn region, there'll be a Sikh there serving food and you know stuff. So we come from that background of fight against injustice, fight for justice. So I was brought up with that, and that's a very strong DNA. So firstly, there was that. Secondly, we grew up as immigrants in the middle of, of you know an African subcontinent, and we weren't black enough to fit in, and we weren't white enough to you know fit in. Um, and that's how we grew up. That was just how our status was. And so you were just, I was saying this to my brother yesterday. I was saying, you know, I don't think you quite understand the level of stress we constantly grew up under of just never, ever, ever fitting in. Having since met people from Kenya and different countries, there's a lot more assimilation in different African countries. And the one I grew up in, there wasn't. Hmm. There just wasn't. So yes, I would say I was honed from very particular steel hmm. all the way from the beginning. And then this was the opportunity for it to come out. And in that moment when you decided to walk out, I think that when I talk about the unlock moment and people think back to those memorable moments in their life or, or career journey, often the one that comes to mind most easily is the moment of the action, the moment of walking out in, in this case. But sometimes there's a different moment, which is the moment you knew you were going to do that or the moment you knew you had to do that. And I think I'm hearing in that the, the conversation you had with your son. When you knew that you had to act, did that feel obvious to you or did it feel like a really difficult choice? I, I think that when you do things like this, what I have learned is that you do it when you feel there is no other choice. Hmm because you don't willingly pick up your children from their nice, cute swimming pool mm. and take them out onto the street kind of thing mm. without thinking there is no other choice. And I think any woman in my position that has done this, mm. and I want to keep saying that because although I've chosen a slightly different path, this is a very common occurrence, unfortunately, yes. for many yeah. women. Um, you do it because you're, it's, it's worse to stay. I said this actually to somebody the other day that, and I didn't know this until I said it, the pain that you cause yourself is infinitely preferable to the pain that someone else is going to cause you. Mm. And that was it. It was the best of a bad choice. And there was no, but there was no, I, I wasn't conscious about it. I didn't think about it. I didn't, it was, it was what there was. Yeah. And that was it. And we did it. 
And you're walking away from a terrible domestic situation. I didn't know we were walking towards poverty, to be fair. <laughs> I may have thought a couple of times before that. If someone had told you that, would you have made a different call? No, I probably wouldn't. Because um, it looked like my child was going to get hurt next. And that's really, that was the thing that, and, and which is why he said to me, I think we're going to get hurt. He meant him. And yeah. I think that, um, no, I would have probably tried to be a bit more. No, I don't know what I could have done. No, I think we are where we are. Yeah. But that was the first time in your life that you'd ever faced into the living circumstances that you then found yourself in with yes. no money, bankrupted, homeless. And alone, isolated, because, yeah. you know, being disapproved of as well. And I'm, I'm really thinking about quite how to phrase this question. But the question I really want to ask is, that being the first time you'd ever been in that situation, but it's also the I have no choice situation, did it feel in the moment, did you notice the giving up? Or was it just, this is what we're doing, let's get on with it? I'm, I'm, I'm not... Um... I've never been a mourner. Mm. It's just not my skill set, you know? I've never been a mourner of anything, I, um, of anyone. And so circumstance, <laughs> I wrote on the top of my website for about two years, this was the header, and everybody used to complain. They're like, why isn't it on brand? And I was like, because this is what I think of. And I used to write, change is inevitable and um, suffering is optional. Right. And I did that because I want everybody to understand how much I hated change. I hated, hated hated change. There had been too much change in my life, moving countries, being without family, doing this, doing that. I hated change so much. And I had to really find a way inside myself to embrace the concept of change. And because I don't like pain as much as I don't like change, I was like, I have to give one of them up. So I gave up the pain kind of thing. But I, I, want, ex I want people to understand this wasn't an easy kind of flip thing. Yeah. No, you know, and so it was so, and, and especially when you're responsible for three small kids and you think it's your fault that they're not living this amazing life that they had four minutes ago, it's quite tough. Yeah. The guilt and the shame are overwhelming. And did you have to fight for your children to have them with <laughs> no. you? No, no, not even slightly, funnily enough. Interesting. So you're in this situation then. You've chosen to be out of where you were before. You're now in pretty much absolute poverty. Where did you start to rebuild? We had 14 pounds a day um, to live off. Um, where did I start to rebuild? Well, I don't know. I did a few things. I had, I asked, I sold, I went to the pawn shop and pawned my jewelry, uh, whatever I was wearing. So that gave me a bit of money to start with. I asked people if they needed help with anything because I was a very good fixer. And so I started getting those things. I didn't quite know how to charge and how to take money for what, you know, and I would fix this huge thing and say, oh, it was 200 pounds and I should have taken 5,000 pounds. You know, I didn't understand that. And everybody who set up a business or starts consultancy knows that, that feeling. Um, I, I did a lot of work on TV and I had been... You know, it, it does really pays to be nice. And I had been very nice because I actually think it's one of the most important things 
in 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 your your life to be decent to people. And I, it's a very good thing I did that because a lot of the people that I've been nice to who were runners were now producers along the way. And so people, you know, I was like, oh, I'm looking for work. And people were like, oh, my God, can you do this? And I'd be like, yes. They were like, do you want it? I'm like, I don't care. Just tell me how much. <laughs> so I remember doing these terrifying, terrifying TV debates. And I'd be, you know, sitting on them and doing stuff thinking, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing here. But this is two term school fees for all kids. That was what it broke down to. How many terms of school fees will this cover? And that's all I looked at. Um, and I just did anything um, except ask people for money and sleep with someone for money. So those are the only two things I wasn't willing to do. And to me, they were on a par with things that I was never going to do. Which, you know, you should 100% do that if it speaks to you. It just didn't speak to me uh, to do either of those two things. Um, and then a friend of mine said, there's this company that's looking for work. And um, they need someone. And I started working with them. And then that developed, bless them, into a year and a half relationship. And they actually gave me a contract. And I said, instead of paying me, could you take a lease out on a house? Because I can't get a lease because I'm a bankrupt. So it took me six months to, it was six months, a very fucking long time to spend with my poor girlfriend and her poor husband who didn't like us at all because we were in his house. I don't blame him at all. Um, and it took me six months, seven months to get us into our own home. And then you started at some point to build this health nutrition business. Well, no, first I developed the corporate negotiating part because, um, there were like, there were like four good corporate negotiators in the world at the time. And I was one of them, which I didn't really, what can I say? I didn't appreciate it because I didn't care. I just, I did appreciate the status. I was just like, give me the money. I don't, I don't care about the rest. I was just like, and I used to come up with these. So I, people would say, can you go fly here and fix this? I'm like, sure. And I flew to Rwanda and I flew to Belarus and I flew to God, think of some weird and wonderful place. And I flew there to fix whatever the problem was. And sometimes there were men with guns and beards and sometimes there weren't, you know, and I would just charge a huge amount of money up front and say, the longer it takes me to fix this, the less you have to pay me. Interesting. Yeah. And so that worked really well. And then I, I listed a company in Saudi Arabia. I built a franchise in Dubai. I mean, I, you know, and I would fly to all these places and every night call all the kids, hi, baby, hi, mama, hi, baby, hi, mama, because they couldn't speak because they were so little. Fucking heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And they would stand at the, my, my, my elder daughter says to me, she said, I would just stand at the window and watch you leave as I cried the whole way till I couldn't see you anymore. And I'm like, I knew that, you know? So at some stage I was like, all right, I can't do this. And my son started to get bullied and it was just all going really pear-shaped. So I was like, I have to spend more time at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he would get sick when I was out of town or he'd end up in hospital and you're in some godforsaken place trying to fly back. But if you fly back without fixing this, you don't get paid. So then what the heck was the point of the trip? There were such hard decisions I had to make on a minute by minute, hour by day basis. In fact, it's what makes me a really good coach because I constantly had to make a shitty or a shittier decision. There was never, I felt for years, honestly, Gary, that there was no let up from that. And I thought, right, I've got to build something in town. I've got to work it out. And and what do I know how to do? And I just knew how to get people healthy because I'd help my son. So that's how Nosh came about. How interesting. And so you're in that place, and I, and I really like that positioning of, you know, you're in the business of dealing with really, really difficult choices 
and that trains you in a certain kind of way to be able to figure certain things out. And it's interesting because in some ways, the mindset of a fixer is very different from the mindset of a coach because a coach is not there to fix things for people, but it's to help the person to fix for themselves. But actually, the way you describe it, it's, it's about decision-making and helping people to make decisions. And that's something quite different. Yeah. And I don't know how normal people coach. My coaching is very specific. But a lot of that is because I guess we'll get to at this. Mm. I, we worked with uh, palliative care, end of life cancer patients. Mm. And, you know, they had very little time. Mm. And I had an hour with them and they had maybe six weeks left. So what you're doing is speak X percent of this person's life is being spent with you. So make it count. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always say to, to my coaching clients, what I'm going to give you is clarity. When you have absolute clarity, then you can go on from there and make decisions. What you can never do when you have clarity is avoid, ignore, or rebut. You cannot. And that's what I do when I coach. So I, I always, and even I did this for me when I was trying to develop myself, and I constantly try and develop myself, but I would find what's the place I'm struggling. And I would ring up people and go, can I hire you for an hour? Can I hire you for a day? And just tell me where I'm stuck. And they would say these things that would tear my heart apart, tear my soul apart, tear my ego apart, probably because I have no bloody ego left. And they would say, you're terrible at this. You're, di- you're doing this. You're doing this. You're in your way here. You're doing this. And then I would be like, oh, okay, got it. And then I'd go back and rebuild myself with that knowledge. And then that was the next version of me. So I'm very interested in the health nutrition business, Nosh, detox, because when I've, and I've talked to quite a few entrepreneurs on the podcast and in in other forums where they talk about, I built this because I'm passionate about the product. I built this because I'm passionate about the impact or passionate about the customers. Why did you build it? I needed the money. (laughs) I needed the money. I, you know, poverty, I was very passionate about not being poor anymore. Um, but it's also because I don't, I tell you what I'm passionate about. I am passionate about injustice, mm. passionate. And it's a through run. I always look, when I coach my clients, I always try and give them the through run through their life. What is the thread that runs through their life? The thread that runs through my life is I cannot bear injustice. And for me, there is an injustice in people being ill and not being able to get better. So what our food did and our juices did is it gave people hope, it gave them mobility, it gave them metabolism, it gave them movement. And that's what I was passionate about. I was never passionate about the food or the juices. They had to be good and they had to help. But there was a woman who came in with MS and what we did, and she was losing functionality quite, and she was interviewing me for an award for something. And I was telling her what we do. And she goes, do you really do that? Can you help me? And I was like, well, I'm about to get on an airplane, but let me send you this stuff, drink this for the next four days. And um, she did a TV, a radio interview, I think it was, the next week. And I was like, how did that happen? She talked about how she'd met me and that I'd sent her this stuff to drink and she couldn't believe it and that she had to walk with a walking stick before the six days. And at the end of the six days, she could put the walking stick away. And, you know, people shift so fast and we don't understand that about ourselves. So do I care about the food and the juice? No. Do I care the result it has on you? Yes. All Mm. time and 16 times on Sunday. Fascinating. And you've become a coach now. And again, this is a, I talk to a lot of coaches and a lot of coaches come on the podcast and 
there's Coach with a Capital C, which is, is it's now my job, my profession, my business, and, and it is for you as well. But then a lot, but not all coaches, I think, were always coaches in some way, shape or form. They've been coaches for a much longer time than they called themselves yeah. a coach, worked as a coach, earned money through coaching. When was the first time that you look back and you think, I, I was beginning to do something that I recognize now to be coaching? Oh, yeah, for sure. We used to have, you know, we had all these because we were the only game in town. There wasn't another detox business. We were the first. But, you know, I had Gwyneth Paltrow and Nigel Swarovski and Jessica Rothschild and the whole of the cast of some Trinians just kept walking in the door because there wasn't anywhere else to go. And Mel B and Mel C and S Club 7 and all these people. And it used to really interest me that these utterly beautiful, beautiful women that would stop traffic and it was their job to stop traffic were so disconnected from their bodies. And they would say things like, I need to lose weight. And I'd be like, so we'll cut your hair and we'll cut your nails and we'll wear you again. Because I do not understand where on earth we are going to get. And then I'm like, hang on a minute, this is crap. It's absolutely not, you know. And it was it was that. And then I would be like telling them, you have to do it like this. And then they'd be like, okay, Gita, Gita, tell me what to do here. And I'd be like, you know, and it was just funny to me because it wasn't, you know, I was selling you food and juices and this was just extra. And then I remember a woman coming in who was very, very, very famous. She's globally famous. So this lady comes in and she is a global household name. And she says to me, I'm not well. And, and, and I'm like not understanding. She comes back two or three times. And she's like, I need to come and talk to you. And so I was like, okay. And I was like, I guess I should charge her. So I made up a number and, you know, I don't know. And she came and sat down and I was like, no, and I couldn't understand it. I knew there was something not right. So the second, I'm trying to be careful. So we, it's not, you know, obvious. So two sessions in, I said, tell me what actually really makes you angry. And I had been, when my son was trying to get better, I had taken him to a healer, an energy healer. And she had made the most difference to this child than anything we'd ever done. And I thought, well, I can't afford to pay this woman, whatever it was, 100 quid an hour. So I found a healing course and I signed up because I was like, I'll do it because it'll be cheaper. And so I had developed all this sort of, you know, energetic um, diagnostic ability, which is, I think, probably what it was. And I became a medical intuitive in, in those, not that I really ever talk about it, but Really, it's the core of, of the work that I do. And this woman is sitting there and I'm like, tell me what you're really angry about. And she explained to me what she was angry about. And it was really about the fact that she was one of this, this huge business. She was like the third or fifth generation or whatever. And there was her and a lot of boys that had been born. And the boys had been put on the board and she hadn't. And that's what was making her sick. So I was like, why don't we just work out how to put you on the board? Because wouldn't that be more effective? And then we did that. It took us about nine months to do that. And that was life-changing because that was so much fun. I'm like, people pay you to do this stuff? Damn. And it came from there. How interesting. And, and you've built over time a very selective group of some, some very interesting people. And, and you know, I'm not asking you to, to divulge your secrets on the podcast, but is it different working with people who are in an environment where they probably have a very small group of people that they can really trust and work with in this kind of way? Yes. And I mean, I do work with, I, I, I work with a lot of very normal people, I should say, because, you know, I love that. It it's just makes life worth living. But I also work with this very small, very select group of people that are either globally famous, globally wealthy, or globally whatever. 
And it's very interesting because celebrity has its own currency and you have to be very clear and careful around that. Like this morning, I got a message from a client of mine who's a very famous TV presenter who said, I'm hosting this event today. Can I quote what we talked about in our session? And I'm like, what, why? I just couldn't quite understand it. And I was like, yes, what, which part? And she said, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. She goes, and of course, I'm going to credit you as my coach. And I was like, you go, girl. Um, (laughs) But, you know, how kind of her to ask me. So there are the the more famous and successful you become, the more isolating it is. And I don't want any of your fame. And I don't want, if you're paying me, you're paying me. And feel free to pay me whatever you want and then double it and triple it on, on whatever you feel like it. But that's all I'm looking for. I don't want to be your friend. I don't want to be your, your, your buddy. I don't want to go stay in your home. I don't want to do any of those things. I'm busy. I have a life and I've got a beautiful house and I'm not interested. And then you'll find really famous people going, but you're my friend, Gita. And I'm like, that's really sweet. That's really sweet, honestly. But, you know, and, and you get invited to stay in the most terrifying places, you know, the most terrifying places, like in palaces and these homes. And I'm just like, oh, was that the butler? Is it my host? Who, you know, who the hell are these people that I've just seen when I've walked in and there's seven people waiting to welcome you into a home? And I truly do not care. (laughs) And I think that that really helps because someone always wants something from you. And having been very famous myself in this country a very long time ago and having grown up to parents who are very well known, I'm really well versed at this. And so I understand it. I understand the way of living it. I understand what it feels like and I understand how isolating it is. And so I'm a very good person to kind of have on side, but who doesn't want your life and who isn't jealous of I think that's, that's really powerful. My wife works in the entertainment industry and we see the same thing all the time, which is that so many people, you know, if they meet somebody who is a minor or even maybe a major celebrity, they slightly go to pieces because in it's so unusual. It feels so special. You know, uh, could I get your autograph? Could I get your photograph? Could I spend time with you? You spoke to me, you knew my name. For those people to work with people who see them as just humans, the same as everybody else is rare and challenging. And yet the challenges that they're facing into in their own context are just the same as everybody else. You know, they, but they have more impact because they have such a bigger remit. Right, right. And for you, how much does the fact that you've had that before and realized that or, or demonstrated that you didn't need that to be you, you know, what you've built today has come out of the starting again from, from the very beginning. Does that help you to be the coach you are today that you've been through that journey you've been on? I mean, I think so. It must do, right? Because it, I'm... I'm... <laughs> one of the things people would always say to me after meeting me is you're so nice and I'm always laughing because I'm like I'm not sure where you wanted me to be but you know I'm, I'm and this sounds like a terrible thing to say but I'm actually quite humble because the only thing I value about myself really honestly and truly about me as me as a person is the power I hold within myself it's my inner power that I rate the highest. I would fight tooth and nail to keep that power. I will not fight tooth and nail to keep almost anything else. I mean, we're never going back to the street. But, you know, so, so if I was talking about me as a woman, that is, that is my, my, what I hold the dearest and I hold the most expensive. And, and the thing I, I 
husband in resources the most. And everything else is everything else. So I'm very clear about that. Because if I remain who, you know how you always hear those stories about people that you take them as they are, give them $500 and shove them in a place and they build this amazing thing up. That's because of who they are. And so that's what I value about me. You know, I don't, I like the other stuff. Let's be very clear. You know, I wanted to succeed and it wasn't enough for me to succeed. I wanted to succeed in Chanel. You know, let's not have any doubt about my deep frivolity where it comes to this crap. You know, I don't care as much anymore, but, you know, I was determined that I would be buying my own designer bags and not because, you know, whatever. Um, But I, I, you know, I didn't, I just have a value system that values my inside first and my outside second. You remind me of quite a recent conversation I had with a world-leading coach in the US called Dean Miles, who was very senior and successful farmer executive and also starting to coach. And his wife turned around to him and said, I think you love it and I think you're really good at it. I think you should think about maybe quitting this job and doing that. And he said, no, but we, we make so much money. You know, I'm so successful. I've put in all these years, I've got to this stage. And she turned around to him and she said, well, what's the worst that could happen? We could just lose where we live and all the money and then we figure it out. And he went, that's not what I wanted you to say. I wanted you to say, make the decision easy by going, oh, no, we, the last thing we could lose is all the money. Imagine you were in a situation where, for whatever circumstance you went, my only choice, as it was then, is to go back to the beginning again. Would you still make that same decision today? If circumstances were such that you went, it feels like it's my only choice, having been there and seen it? I just don't think it works like that. I don't think Mm. retrospection is of any use or comfort Mm. because I think that I, even at my worst times where I felt fear or I was afraid where we would eat, I was afraid how we would live, I was afraid how to buy medicine, I was afraid of all those things, even when I felt the absolute shame and guilt of not being able to take my children on holiday for years and years where I, I, you know, there were so many people offering me free options and, you know, I just had to do this and I could have this. I never, ever have just not a looker-backer. I think that's why I'm not a long mourner. I, I, I really would struggle to answer that question because I think that we all make the best decisions that we can there and then. Mm-hmm. And that it is the best decision I could make there and then, and that's what I did. And then I, I went with that decision. I'm going to ask another retrospective question. Go. Um, if you could go back in time and meet Gita sleeping on that floor with three kids, with nothing, 14 pounds a day, and say, I've come from the future and I can tell you what you're going to need to do to get to where you need to go, what would you be saying to that person? I think I would do exactly what I've done now, which is that in those days, what I did, the thing that saved my soul and that was so interesting. And I think I've, I've now, I've never stopped doing it in one format or another is I had a book and it had blank pages and I used to draw a line down the middle of a page and put the date at the top. And I would sit there at night when everyone had gone to sleep. And on the right hand side, I would write things I've got to do tomorrow. And they involved making more than 14 pounds <laughs> and the things I had to do work out how to buy a new pair of shoes, you know, and then on the left hand side, I would write things that the universe has to do for me tomorrow. 
And I did not know how I could do any of the things. Like I didn't know how I was going to find a house. I didn't know how we were going to eat. I didn't know how they were going to stay at school. I didn't know any of those things. But I knew that the universe had to help me to do them and was going to help me to do them. I don't even know how I knew that. I just knew it. And so probably because I grew up with this absolute faith as a Sikh. And that's what I did then. And honestly, it's what I do now. I do it with a lot more abandon now. Now I almost don't even bother writing things. I'm just like, okay, universe, I'm here. What are we doing? How we? And so people are like, I'm just setting my goals and I'm going to do this. And I'm like, damn, that's really amazing. I feel like I should be doing this shit. This is zero point. Make plans and God laughs. Isn't there some saying that's very clever around that? And you don't survive the life I've had without being on some level very clear about being a planner and a functioner and a fixer and a this and a that. And it has taken the biggest amount of growth I have absolutely available for. And the hardest work I've ever done has been letting it go. Mm. Because I used to hear these phrases, let go, let God. And I'm like, oh, shut up. Just, just let me do it my way, okay? <laughs> and now I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to let go. <laughs> I can't do anything. And I didn't know about the people that listen to this podcast. I just know there's quite a lot of them and hopefully, you know, numbers growing Great. over time. But... If there's someone listening who resonates with your story, and I'm thinking particularly, actually, the part of your story where you felt trapped in a domestic violence situation, what would you say to those people who are hearing this story and hearing the journey you've been on? What would you say to them? It's not your fault. It's just not your fault. You're being manipulated. You're being tricked. You're being... Yeah, controlled, it's not your fault. Once you accept it's not your fault, you can then also accept that there's something you can do about it. You know, because women tend to ask why. We tend to think like, why are they doing this? Why? And we have this terrible form of victim bonding where we hang out with other people whose lives are also bad and talk about how bad our lives are. I learned instead of victim bonding to ambition bond. What's the best I can do? What's the best my life can be? And I used to say all these things that they're all saying, I have nowhere to go. I don't know what to do once I leave. I don't know how to go. Yeah, it's very true. And, and everybody is different. So if you stay, I want to give you my love and my respect. And if you leave, I want to give you my love and my respect. And I want you to choose what those alternatives are for you because no one can make that decision for you. No one from the outside looking in can make that decision for you because it's really hard to stay the course once you've gone. Really hard. Almost leaving is almost easier than staying gone. Thank you for sharing that. How can people find out more about the work you do uh, and how can they connect with you? Uh, just put my name into any kind of social media. Like, you know, we tend to like, Instagram is all about empowerment and it's my name, Gita Sidhu Rob. Uh, TikTok is more about perimenopause and sort of medical injustice about women. And I don't even go on LinkedIn, so I don't know what to tell you about that. But basically put my name in. And my website is gitasidurob.com. And you do have a podcast? I have also a podcast called, thank you for reminding me, <laughs> called Activate Yourself. <laughs> so please come and listen to my podcast. There are so many ways to, in, to, to interact with the information that, that we put out. You know, you're so welcome. Um, we, I don't want anything from you as such. Just come in and enjoy it. And, and if you want to reach out, reach out. Fantastic. It's been an incredible conversation as I was expecting. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity 
when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For coach, speaker, author, and CEO, Gita Sudirob, it was a conversation with her son, which helped her to leave a domestic violence situation and start again with absolutely nothing, but with an incredible commitment to design her own future exactly the way she wanted. To check out Gita's podcast, Activate Yourself, on all major podcast platforms. Gita, it's been such a privilege to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing your story with such authenticity and openness and for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for having me. It has been such an honor and really great talking to you. Thank you. If you've taken something from this conversation with a person who faced into impossible circumstances and found the inner strength to create a new life on her own terms, then check out episode 81 with the incredible Megan Onan on being shunned by her community when she was outed as gay. And if you resonated with how Gita had to battle against the odds, then check out episode 57 with Mike Ott, who talks about the road to recovery from the brink of death. And episode 18 with Chris Tibbetts, whose doctor triggered him into drastic action to change his lifestyle and save his life. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.